Hey everyone, Pastor Rick here. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. In today's message, we explore the growing feelings of cynicism towards injustice. This is such an important conversation for us to have. At our live events at 5280 Church, we offer a time of discussion. These discussions create a backstory that often frames my message and teaching. Because of the importance of addressing injustice and the potential to alienate others, I want to share with you the backstory that shapes the direction of this message. I intentionally do not land on a position or side with some of the social justice issues talked about in this episode. Yes, there are serious issues of injustice in our world. The ongoing conversations and activism are so important for us to be confronted with, even though they are difficult and frustrating to face. In the middle of these important conversations, I see a growing cynicism and dismissiveness towards each other, no matter what side of the issue and experiences we're on. These attitudes threaten real progress and change. Add faith to the mix and it all erupts into an overwhelming argument. It is these attitudes and feelings that I attempt to address in this message. I get personal in this message. For me, hearing the stories of injustice awakens my compassion for others and my personal experiences of injustice. Our current constructs do not allow me to share those experiences without fear of being ridiculed and dismissed. How can I heal? How can I empathize? How can I bring anything positive to the table if I do not come to terms with my experiences and lack of sympathy in the greater context of the experiences of others? Without healing, I bring more brokenness. I share my experiences with injustice not to diminish others, nor do I share my story to elevate my experience with injustice as being the same or as equal to others. I share it because my experiences have a serious and devastating effect on me. I share it because these feelings, if not processed well, will add to the growing cynicism and dismissiveness that will hinder real change and progress. My experiences will push against your story as well. What will we do? How will we respond to one another? Where in the world is God in the middle of all of this? That's what this message is about. It is my desire for us to be allies and not enemies. Let's learn how to overcome our cynicism and dismissiveness of one another. We can think that we'll be happy when we get what's coming to you. You look at it and say, well, maybe I get it, you know, so there's going to be this, this, you know, overcoming our oppressors and pushing those people to the wayside, and, and there's value in these guys who are injustice and need to be better, but then we think, well, what if we add the idea that, you know, I just need to advance. I just need to advance for some part. You know, why should we care when I can't like, get it? And so we add that to our worldview, thinking that it will redeem our worldview. And suddenly, we get the same thing. Where do you see this in verses 45? He says, Then I saw that all the soil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Hold on, back to Chuck. There's two words there toil and skill and work. 
point was the energy we spend to make things right, to champion them, to lift up our cause, and then work as the that we do with our hands within that effort. So the way we view life and the emotional energy that we spend, the spiritual energy that we spend is pulling, and then pulling the work with the actual effort that we put into it. He says, I saw that all toil and skill and work come from man's envy. What does it mean? Look at the rich. Look at the way they live. Look what they have. And look what I The system works against me. It oppresses me. It holds me down. I've never been given a shot. Now, listen, I'm talking about four white trash that grows in the toilet part, too. Because that's my message. I resonate with that message. Because I don't think it's tied exclusively to race or gender. Or even I think there's a common experience of all humanity that we, we, we stop lying to ourselves that we would come to the realization that this is something that we all wrestle with. We all have felt marginalized and, and pushed to the way something can use this. And we can be motivated by what other people have and think, why should they have it all? And it's their responsibility to make it happen for me. We can live that way to say, I'll be happy when that happens, when I get what's coming to me, or you can take away my, my faith. See, my story and my faith ends up with my parents kicking me out of the house after they were senior year of high school, three days before Christmas. Come with your friends at the fourth yard. The bottom of a little hat and a fourth fiesta, and it's quickly essential as and that's the way I started life. Is I'm taking every piece of iron as mine that's off my foot yard and we will have to be caught a little more stuff. One day, one day, you will get a screen of them. It's going to be like having a pressure on people. It's going to be the surface of And then the children said, you know what? I'm going to show you. Don't push me into the abyss and push me into a disadvantage. I'm going to show you. I'm going to You got two choices. You have two choices. When you're standing in the football yard, picking up your underwear out of your grass and putting it in the back of your car, having no idea where you're going to sleep next. You're going to crumble and you're just going to cope and medicate yourself into a meridian. We're going to rise up and we're going to do something wrong. I'm going to get what was coming to me to accept it. And they tell you that it's so easy. Why? Because I'm going to prove my parents wrong in everything that I wanted to pursue came from the inspiration of that someone else. There was no sense of identity, there was no sense of worth, there was no real direction in my life. It just knew that I was disobedient and I was going to have what I was going to have. That was going to be up on my own hand, that was going to be my own man, that was going to be my own person, that's the way things have been. And in terms of that, it's all the same thing. This also is vanity. This is also vanity and striving after the wind. And then he turns around and says, The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. What are you talking about? He's like, I'm motivated by envy of his neighbor. I covet my neighbor. That's what covet means, is to envy what somebody else has and then pursue it. I want what they have, it's coveting. 
And then when they get there, they step back and they say it's not at all. And what happens is, is that poverty is really, really deceptive. Because you reach the standard and you feel good for a moment and you kick back and say, you've got it. And then you realize that you're not here. There's only one here. You never there's always a better career, there's always a bigger house, there's always more friends, there's always better car, there's always more phone, there's always better spouses, there's always better friends, there's always better, 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 better. And it eats us alive. You know what's interesting? Is this word eats his own flesh is the same thing as envy of his neighbor and covenant its life. It's the idea of being driven so much by your passions that you can't satisfy them. Quintessential definition of life. I'm going to get what's coming to you. So my question is, in a fight for justice, and I'm wrestling with injustice in the world, are you motivated? Are you really motivated by life? More than a sense of life? And the only way that we can do that is to take our eyes off of people and off of ourselves and place our sense of worth and justice on something from the outside. The third way that we can pursue happiness is we can say that we'll be happy when we make a name for myself. You know, there's not much wrong with this. I mean, because this can mean that overwhelming fame, I'm going to do whatever I need to do so everybody knows my name. But making a name for ourselves is obviously so I'm going to do something with my life that's meaningful. I'm going to leave a legacy behind. That's another way to do it. I'm going to leave something behind. And sometimes what you leave behind is self-centered, and sometimes what you leave behind can be good. Can you like it? Can you something that we can celebrate? And that's what we want. But the interesting thing about people that we celebrate in, in this life that we look back on and admire, where I make a name for myself was never a noble category. They were always motivated by something they were themselves. You know, I was reading an article the other day about Rose McGowan. Is that his brother, or is that his name? I think I hooked up. You know, one of the founding women of the YouTube movement. And she's being ridiculed because, you know, she's getting arrested twice. So she's being ridiculed a lot. Some of the funny players in the YouTube movement are coming out. Being a little more hypocritical before the statement and the, the values of what they're trying to do. And, and her statement is, this is my last work in every country. When I make a name for myself, then I have to defend myself at every point. Who cares what anybody thinks? If it really is an idea, it's to step with their spirit. As you name really know, There's always going to be somebody that comes to you to just, you know, to, to look at you as consistent and to trust you. But if you're really doing something worthwhile, then those kind of things don't matter. The name doesn't matter. And we see this tension. Solomon wrestles with this in chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. And this is what he says. He says, Better was a poor and a wise youth than an old, foolish king who would no longer know how to take advice. 
So he says to restore that with rags to riches. He says, for he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born first. So it tells us that he was part of right? So here's this guy where, this is what we love about America, right? This is the American dream. You could come from ashes and, and, and rise above that and make something beautiful. You can go from rags to riches. You can go from foreign prosperous. You can go from an educated education. You can do something meaningful in life or something meaningful in life. You have all these equal opportunities. And you just get to you. It's part of it. It's so funny. The people, that, 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 that the poor person who's living on the streets can one day be president of the wealthiest country in the world. And he's looking at that thing, what a beautiful story. And he goes on and he looks. And he says, he says, in verse 16, following, he says, And then I saw all the living who knew about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. So I start looking around at all the people that are around him and all the people that are following this guy, this incredible story, this incredible leader, this inspiring person, and there was no end to all the people of whom he had led. It's like they were, they were endless. It's like this guy was on everybody's list. He was on everybody's news feed. He was on every network channel. He was everywhere. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is going to be striving after him. You know what I'm saying? He said at some point you're going to leave this life with him to somebody else. Somebody else that goes to the body of his house. So when you get to the top, you're going to leave it behind and nobody's going to stay away because that's going to fix this thing. See, what the time was making a name for yourself that lasted all your life. And then when you're there and you're not there to defend yourself, then you become fair game. Your life becomes fair game for how you live. If you get caught up in making a name for yourself, I'm going to set this right, I'm going to be the leader of this movement, I'm going to change the world, I, 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 me, 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 you're going to end up building whatever you build on faulty foundation. And one day you're going to have to let it go, and we're going to ask you something when it comes time to pass away, you know, your life will come to the next person, and the next generation can come to leave. How you going it's going to be a sense of fulfillment or a sense of loss. When you're building a name for yourself, it's going to be a sense of loss, right? We know that there's weak mythology, a feeling, but what are the feelings you're looking for? Take the feet. Where is God left you? There's one guy with them. He's got struck in the middle of you. See, the Lord is very good. Why do you do what you do? And for whom you do that matters. If it's for you, and the people and things and issues around you are just about the nation of yourself, then I just want it. Because you want to be the best mom ever. And then if your kids and your husband's responsibility is that you still like the best mom, if you want to be the most successful person at your work, then the employees around you become your stepping stones to help you become the best at what you do. But when it's about other people, about promoting good, it's about benefiting the greater good and what you're doing purpose. You're there to elevate people, to encourage people in your life that making a dangerous step to something good is about investing in other people so they can do that. That's what happens. You change your view. You change your view. 
see the idea of doing something great is not a bad idea because God is great. God rules the world. God is over the world. God wants us to be happy. God wants us to enjoy this life. We talk about that in previous messages that say, from the hand of God comes enjoyment. The idea that enjoyment and the hand of God go together is a ridiculous idea for most Christians, but the truth is, in the culture, the idea is that God wants us to enjoy this life. God is good. God is great. Why do we desire glorious? Why do we desire beautiful? Why do we care about Jesus? Because God is all of these things. Look at creation, with his handiwork, his, his thought. It's, it's this earth doesn't overwhelm you. Know, get on the Martha website and look at some of the pictures of space. It's unspeakably beautiful. And the heart and mind and passion of God is great, it's glorious. And we can stand on top of the wall or fly into the depths of the universe and rejoice in that great and, you know, and enjoy the moment that God has given us and that opportunity to do those things. And even if we're only in the world, to elevate life and good. The beauty of all this, and really elevating this just idea, this truth that is good and pleasant in life. The See, I get asked all the time, or repeated most of the time, this isn't really a question, but I can't take any of your questions because I'm a pastor, right? And I think we'll suggest that all the time, Christian religious knows that's a construct. You know what? It's still written. And I'm going to tell you, I said, you know what? God did want to create a social construct. A social construct is nothing more than a set of values and truths that don't do any one of those matters to God. What's the thing called? It's the redeeming culture. He wants to bless us. He wants to make culture new. He wants to bring the incredible stories of brokenness to you. The question is who wants to come? If it's religious leaders, and then get rid of religious leaders in the There's the same guy who's in the corner of the world with stories you get with them for that. If it's some idea apart from God altogether, then you get the depth and all that they can bring to the table and the next day. He will refuse to redeem all the thinking. The fourth time, then you will need to find happiness in the just world as you will say, I'll be happy when it's no longer a thing for me. I'm going to be when it's no longer about me. If you're oppressed, I'll be happy when it's no longer about me. If you're the oppressor, I'll be happy when it's no longer about me. If you're poor, you'll be happy when it's no longer about you. If you're rich, you'll be happy when it's no longer about you. If you're a leader of the world, you'll be happy when it's no longer about you. If you're an obscure person that doesn't even, uh, is not even known among 8 billion people in the planet in some undeveloped country, you'll be happy when it's no longer about you. See, we're happiest when we're connected. When we're connected relationally. We see this in verses 8 through 12. Let's read what God says. There's one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to the one who's called. It's like, man, there's one person that has nobody in his life, and there's no end to all of his efforts, and his eyes are never satisfied, so with riches, so that he never asks, 
for who in my corner and finding myself in pleasure. He's like, we can work and spend our whole life and have no one in our life to even cause us to question why are we doing this? And he goes on and he says in the following verses, this also is vanity in an unhappy place. Listen, to work and toil and have no one relationally to connect with, no one to bless, no one to lift up, no one to join me with you, is unhappy business. It's unhappy business. This is why we create connection. This is why we're always trying to look to find a way for meaning and purpose. This is why we're always trying to work on relationships. why we're always seeking positive relationships. This is why, quite honestly, we feel so disconnected on Facebook when we scroll through it because it's not a real relationship. It's the idea of what a relationship could be. If I had friends, this is what it would look like. If I was going out and enjoying this weekend, this is what it would look like. If I had a marriage, this is what it would look like. If I had the perfect house, this is what it would look like. If I had the perfect job, this is what it would look like. If I had meaning and purpose in my life, this is what it would look like. And we're looking at this thing, this person has it, this person has it, this person has it, but I can't even relate to that person anymore. It's like I'm friends on Facebook and start saying, hey, let's hang out together. We're like, no, we compete, we compare. And we feel as good. Turn on happy business. He goes on. In verse 9, it says, Two are better than one because they have good rewards for this place. They work together. They enjoy life. Something beautiful comes out of something when you work together with somebody. And it's not just the material things. It's not the physical things that you measure, but it's this emotional feeling to know that you live life in sync with another person. But if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. And woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. And, and so he's using this idea of relationships to like, we're blessing people in our life and helping us, encouraging us, and when we fall, he's trying to lift us up. And then what a terrible place it would be and no one is lift us up. No one. And then stop the keep going. And he says again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm away? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. So most of you know, we need these relationships, not just to keep us warm and add meaning to life, but when people come against us, when a chief is standing against their oppressor, it has to withstand. And then he does something really interesting at the end. He says, a three-fold cord is not just a group. And when you wear the third cord, we're talking about two people here. Who is that person? This mysterious third cord that is the picture. What is he talking about? Um, remember, he first threw it out the window earlier, and then he threw back to his conclusion that I'm going to say. If we're not going to have people move out, they'll fight with me. But when that third person will die there, and when I start to intertwine about this God who gives us sense of justice, who really believes it is the person, the person in, in the image of all that I want to hold this good, when, when all of that starts to come together and my life begins to intertwine with God and, and, and that being begins to intertwine with my relationship and who I bless and, and, and believers in my life but and people who need to know Jesus and I love God to become so wrapped up in my life and I want to be so, I'm so wrapped up in God and in my relationship. Then, 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 I find a place of justice. Then, I find a place. Then, I find a place. Then, I see some place in me and peace. 
identical picture of three chords on this screen. There are three chords. The first one represents God. In this verse, this idea of friendship and companionship and doing life together and caring about the good of another person and having another person care about the good of you and having all three of those, that all those relationships get wound up and intertwined with God with the definition of good ultimately became the definition of Christian marriage. See, the idea of relationship and good and just and right and, and, and building one another up is the foundation of a healthy marriage. And that definition, that person that lays out foundation, that example that we're looking for, that truth that you conform to, is him. And so Christianity quickly got the idea that, yes, God needs to be that point that holds two loving people together. They can have a beautiful friendship. But when you are God to the mix, and there's healthy faith and a right view of understanding of justice and all this thing, and God begins to intertwine and love your decisions, it quickly back against your brokenness. And you start to feel from your brokenness when you're actually able to bless and love person that is coming in front of you. And you're, you're calling people to a definition that you're both pursuing. And you're calling people to a level of justice or equality or meaning and words that are not based on you. It doesn't affect anybody. It doesn't trust anybody. It doesn't advance, you know, just one person in advance of other people. See, this is the message that we missed it. It's not who gets the hold, the most. Who controls the power? And these people that agree with you get in and together and everybody else. Well, you get marginalized because all you do is bring in the pendulum of power and, and become the hypocritical of the very value you want to be. Christianity has done it with entire existence. When it misses the power of God, culture has done it when it misses the power of God and rejects it. It doesn't matter what your values are. Without God, the that definition, that outer voice, that impartial and fair judge, that gives us a standard of justice. It says, this is what humanity is going to have. This is where we find happiness in you. Without all that other tournament giving. We have no hopes. Finding happiness. So the point is this. Let your life become so intertwined with God and with other people and His standard of good, and you pursue that with all your passion, love, and heart, and you tie that knot. And every time you twist those cords again, you tie them out. And you break it. And the next step, you break it again, and you tie them out. And you break it again, and you tie them out. And you break it again, and you tie them out. Why? Because God wants to end injustice. He wants you to be happy in it, and He wants to use you in His plan of See, most people reject Christianity because the gospel has become God wants to eradicate the sin. And what I'm telling you today is the real sense of justice is God wants to eradicate sin. So we can redeem it. See, the unjust is not the person. It's the distorted value that takes the person that leads them to 